you all doing today? Um, we, we are in the second uh, week of the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, Ben introduced the Sermon on the Mount. And, and today, we begin to walk through um, the section that we're going to be focusing on, um, which, which are the, the, the words that beginning in Matthew chapter 5, generally with the phrase, blessed are. Um, and, and I don't know, how many of you have read the Sermon on the Mount recently? Show of hands. How, how recently? And keep your hands up. In the last week, in the last month, in the last year, who's never read it? All right. I, rec- I recommend it as something, it's, it's, it's almost like something that's a centering in Christianity. Because Peter even said of Paul that the things that Paul wrote were very complicated. So imagine that, the Apostle Peter, who walks with Jesus for three years and leads the early church, when he's writing in his own um, epistle, he says that Paul's words are very complicated, difficult to understand, and people twist them. And so it's telling us that the, the New Testament isn't always easy to understand. And Jesus said many things, and the things he said were recorded in the different Gospels. But if ever you find yourself like a, a ship just, just drifting a little, it's, it's something I'd recommend. Just come back and read through Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And how long do you think that takes? Do you think that takes an hour? 30 minutes? 15 minutes. It's about 13, 14, 15 minutes, which isn't a, a long time. If you're leading others, Sometimes it's an interesting thing to do once in a while is just to go around the room and read a little section of it because it helps us to, to, to remember the simple things that Jesus said um, and Matthew puts them all in this big section at the top of his gospel because obviously they're very important and so it's the, the longest teaching of Jesus that we come to um, at the start of, of the gospel of Matthew and I thought about it, I thought if, if, if all I had for you this morning was is what we're going to do folks, we're going to read the Sermon on the Mount. What would you say? You're like, we didn't come for that. <laughs> You're up here, teach something. And I realize that, that that's one of the weird things we have in church and, 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 that, and that sometimes what we should do is pause and just read long passages of Scripture. Um, and, and so in groups, alone with your family, with your friends, just every so often have this habit, this discipline of coming back to it because I've heard it said, I don't know who said it, um, uh, that, that if we just got this, and nothing else in the Scripture would be fine. If we just got what was in the, the Sermon on the Mount, we would be fine. Um, and so we're going to read a fairly healthy section of it this morning, um, beginning in Matthew 4, verses 23, and remembering that Jesus has just called his disciples to himself. Jesus has just called his disciples to himself, and reading from verse 23 of chapter 4, and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria. So look at that. Jesus heals people and he gets famous. And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And so it's possible that Jesus was speaking primarily 
in these things to his disciples. He says, then he opened his mouth and he taught them. And so the question is, is the them his disciples or is the them everyone else? It doesn't matter a whole lot, but let's imagine that it's disciples that Jesus is saying what he says later. And particularly when he says that you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world and all those other things that he says elsewhere in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount. But then he says this, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So just imagine you've been a follower of, of the, the Old Testament, the scriptures, you're Hebrew, you've followed Jesus, you've seen these amazing things he's done. Um, you might be there because you need a miracle yourself or you need healing or, or there's something else that you want from him. And he begins to teach and he says something that is easier for us, easier for us to hear it today, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because that's the text we're focusing on this morning, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just leave that up for a little and think about that. You've never heard anything like this before. You've never heard anything even remotely like this before because Jesus is beginning to reveal to people the kingdom of heaven. And he's revealing things about the kingdom of heaven as he begins to talk through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. He's revealing to them things about the kingdom of heaven and, and he's revealing the kingdom of heaven in a context that is an earthly one. Our earthly context, the things we touch, taste, smell, see, feel, are more real to us, aren't they? than the kingdom of heaven. We're sitting on benches. The bench is tangible. We're tapping our feet on the floor. We're folding our arms. We're touching our watches. We can see each other. We can hear one another. We can perceive our surroundings. But Jesus is revealing something to them that he's saying is actually more real, more tangible, more important, more enduring and eternal than the earthly reality. But the thing that Jesus is revealing to them is very different. It's countercultural. It's a new way. So this is the beginning of Jesus revealing to them an entirely new way, and it's the way of who? Jesus. And the disciples were first referred to in the Scripture as followers of the way. They weren't called Christians first. We call one another Christians. We say that people who follow Jesus, who are disciples of Jesus, are Christians. But they were called first followers of the way. You'll find that in Acts 9, in Acts 19, in Acts 22, in Acts 24, that they were called followers of the way. And it's a way that is counter-cultural, that is very different to the way of the world. And so we're focusing today on this small section, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the, the fact that R is italicized in my Bible tells me that that's not in the Greek. So it's actually just saying blessed. Blessed. How do you say it? You say blessed or blessed. I grew up in an old Baptist church. We used to say blessed the whole time. Do you say, who says blessed? Who says blessed? And there's a fancy French accent over it, right? I'm going to say blessed all morning. I'm sorry. It's just I'm old. 
And that's, that's the way I learned to do it. But blessed are the poor in spirit. But it's just saying blessed. It's this state of being that belongs to those who are poor in spirit. And the closest modern words we use, what do you think the closest modern word we have to blessed is? Because Christians use it a lot. I speak with people on the phone and they say, have a blessed day. And I hope you have a blessed day. And bless this, bless that, bless that. And it's indicative of, this is the Christian speaking to me, right? So we use a word that is not a cult, cultural word. So what word is, do we have that is closest to blessed? Happy. Who has happy in their Bible? If you're reading some translations, it says happy, right? And the word beatitude comes from Latin, the word beati, which means, anybody? Blessed, happy, rich. And so when we're talking about the beatitudes, we're talking about the state of being that is one of being blessed. But if we went with the word happy, because happy is easiest for us to understand, we can work with happy, can't we? Because we can say it's good to be happy. And we can, Steve. I know you're shaking your head, but we're going to do it for just a minute. <laughs> we're going to work with the word happy for a reason. Because those, put your hands up, constitutional scholars. How many lawyers do we have in the room? Come on, attorneys, raise your hands. Don't be afraid. No one's going to shoot you. <laughs> I am an attorney. It's fine. I'm raising my hand. You don't need to be ashamed to see your head in your hand back there. Why, 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 why is this? But constitutional scholars, everybody could tell me because I'm obviously know the Constitution better than you all. <laughs> the Constitution says we're endowed by God with, next word, unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So think what it's saying there, that the Constitution says that the right to pursue happiness is somehow important. And the question is, what does that mean and where does it come from? Some people say, and the constitutional scholars can shoot me down, some people say that they may have been aware of the concept of blessedness in the scriptures when they were writing this. Some people may have said it would have come from some writing that John Locke wrote. He had two treatises on government, that there was similar language in there and it may have come from there. But whatever, wherever it came from, here's what's interesting is what it means is important. Because if when we read the Constitution, we say that to be, happy, to be happy, to pursue happiness means that I can pursue what I want and make myself supremely happy, isn't that problematic? Because if it means that I pursue what it means for me to be happy and I don't care about anybody else, and then my happiness infringes on the happiness of someone else, then I think that becomes problematic. But that's one definition of what the word happiness means. What does culture say happiness is? This is why we're doing it, Steve, you see. What does culture say it means to be happy? I'm happy if I am, come on, you can tell me. Popular, I'm happy if I'm popular. If I have how many followers on Twitter and wealthy, I'm happy if I'm wealthy, I'm popular. I'm, I'm, I, if I had a billion followers on Twitter, it means that when I'm sitting in an airport and my plane's canceled, I can just tweet something and I'd get the plane fixed. Because people do stuff like that. I know people like that who when they, they tweet and they have, millions of followers, and when they do it, the airlines actually call up and say, we're sorry that this happened. It doesn't do it when I do it, <laughs> because I'm not on Twitter, or, but if I was, they'd be like, Anna. <laughs> and then she'd be like, I, I, know, I know your plane's late, and I'm sorry, but nothing happens. So popularity makes us happy. Affluence makes us happy. If we're rich, if we're popular, if we're successful, what else? If we're powerful. And sometimes we're powerful because we're rich, right? And sometimes we're powerful because we're popular. But if we're safe, does that make us happy? Who feels happier when they're safe? 
Yeah, when we go to sleep at night, we want to sleep and know that we're safe, right? We want to know that we, who feels happier when they're healthy? Who feels happier when they're secure? So you get in a sense of, 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 of culture would say this. And so we've got, we've got one definition of happy, which is constitutional, whatever that actually means. We've got another definition of happy according to culture. Um, but the Bible has something different to say. So think about this. And so in the midst of a culture where we're happy when we're rich and we're successful and we're powerful and we're popular and we're important and we have status, Jesus says, oh, hold on a second, blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor in spirit. And that jars a little bit, doesn't it? It has to jar with us because our concepts of happiness are a lot different than that. There are some principles that if, if, you, if you read Psalm 1, so the first of the Psalms, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, the way of the sinner stands in the seat of the mocker, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on his, on his law day and night. And it goes on to say that that person is, is something in particular. So just, just at some point, have a look at Psalm 1. And at some point, have a look at Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 8, because they say kind of the same thing, but they're telling us a definition of biblically what it means to be blessed. And one of the first principles is this. It says that they're people who are trusting in God, trusting to God in God, looking, looking to him and hoping in him. The second thing it says is that they're like trees planted by rivers of water. That's what it says in Psalm 1. And in that passage in Jeremiah, like a tree planted by streams of water. Think about that for a minute. What does that mean? Where are your roots? Your roots are deep in the water, right? So if it gets hot, what happens? You're still nourished. So it's telling us that the state of being blessed is something to do with nourishment all the time. And the contrast that it makes in both of those scriptures is that there's instead a shrub that's in the middle of the desert. That's nowhere near the water. So the opposite of being blessed is to be like a, a shrub in the middle of the desert. How would that feel? Would that feel great? No, it would not. Wouldn't we prefer to be the tree planted by the rivers of water whose roots are reaching down into the water? And the next thing it says is because the roots are reaching down into the water, that person brings forth fruit in season. So you are fruitful. So the state of being blessed means that you're fruitful. You're trusting to God. In God, you're looking to him, you're hoping in him. You're like a tree planted by rivers of water. You're bringing fruit forth in its season. The next thing it says is your leaves never wither. The next thing it says is you prosper in everything you do. So this is what it means biblically to be blessed. Not to be necessarily rich. Not to be necessarily popular. Not to be necessarily successful. Not to be necessarily the person that has the greatest status that everybody wants to be like. Not to necessarily be a, a king or a queen or a president or somebody who has it all. But instead, someone who is trusting in God, looking to him, hoping in him. Like a tree planted by rivers of water, always fruitful. Your leaves never wither. You prosper in everything you do. In other words, God is for you. You're hoping in God, you're trusting in God, and God is on your side. You're a friend of God. God is for you. And the opposite, you think about this, would then be trusting in someone other than God, in yourself, probably, in humanity, probably, and finding yourself, Jeremiah says, an enemy of God. So we have these two contrasts. And somehow it seems as if 
Imagine this, that the tree planted by the rivers of water, and almost no matter what happens in the environment around, the tree's going to be okay, right? If your tree is digging its roots down into the water and, and its leaves are never withering and there's always fruit, it's indicative of the fact that the tree's doing okay, no matter what the environment is. And if you follow through to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something very similar there. And it's about standing through the storms of life. Whoever hears these sayings of mine, so remember this is the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 24 to 28. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the wind blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the wind blew and beat on that house, and it fell and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings, look at this, the people were astonished. They're like, what is this? Where's he getting this stuff? We have teachers, but they don't teach like this. Sack the teachers, get him, right? <laughs> this guy's got the good stuff. His teachers, they're astonished for he taught of them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And so, and so Jesus seems to be saying that being blessed isn't, going to protect you from the storms of life. I once heard a story of a preacher who was called in the middle of the night in, in circumstances where there'd been some natural disaster. And they said, preacher, we, we want to hear what you have to say about this. And he's like, oh, goodness. And he's like, said he was rubbing his eyes and trying to work out why his phone had rung and why they wanted to hear something from him. And he said he began to say something because he felt as if the Lord just put it in his mouth. And he said, um, um, the wise man build his house on the rock. And he said the presenter was like, okay. And he was saying in his own head, God, you've got to be more, got to have me, give me more than this. And then he said, well, I think I know what comes next in that passage. And the foolish man built his house on the sand, live on air. And then he said, then the clarity came. And then he said, then the storms come. And the difference is the storm comes to both of them. The storm comes whether you're wise and you build on the rock, and you hear the teachings and the sayings of Jesus and you do them, and the storm comes whether you hear them and don't do them or you just never hear them or don't care the first thing about them. Being blessed is being in a state where no matter what life throws at you, you're like the tree planted by the streams of water. You're always fruitful. And people will look at you and like be saying, I don't understand how you can be fruitful because I know what your life's like. I know how difficult it is. I know how tough it is. I know how your life really, really is almost impossible. I couldn't do anything like that. You must have some secret. And what is the secret? You like the tree planted by the streams of water. That's why your leaves don't wither. That's why you're fruitful. In other words, you are blessed. The essence of being blessed as a Christian is exactly this. And so Jesus is saying here in this scripture, if you want to be happy, start here. If you want to be rich, start here. If you want to be blessed, start here. And he's taking the world and he's tipping it upside down. He's saying that the riches that we seek and the success that we seek and the status that we seek and the influence that we seek, all those things are just not that important. If you want to be rich, start here. And where's here? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And you see how that is jarring to us. 
Now, I don't know how many of you are, are visual learners. How many of you are visual learners? And it helps if you see things. All right, so, so we, 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 got, we got something for you because um, we know you like to see things like this. Um, but this is, this is what I want you to grab for a moment. Imagine, imagine that the, 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 the base of this, if you took the base away, the whole thing's going to fall apart, right? And imagine if the way of disciples, and today's title is the way of humility. Being poor in spirit is about humility. And if you put Matthew 5.3 in the bottom left and you put the way of humility there, it is entirely possible, and I can't prove this to you, it's possible, but if you don't get this one, you don't get any of the rest of them. If you don't start somewhere, why does Jesus start with this, blessed are the poor in spirit? Why doesn't he start with blessed are the peacemakers? Why doesn't he start with blessed are the merciful? Why doesn't he start with blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or the meek or those who mourn? Those come next. And if there's any purpose in the order, it might be because this is the most important one. That the way of humility, that somehow finding yourself in a place that there is humility in you, is the start of walking in the way of Jesus. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit because we're going to fill in the, the right side of this a little later on. But imagine this then, that there's a ladder, and so at the top of the scale is all the things we said, or a staircase, or something very, very high, riches, success, popularity, power, safety, health, security. Jesus is flipping this. And at the other end of the scale, instead of those who are perceived to be up, he's raising to the top of the scale those who would, in society's eyes, be perceived to be down. So imagine you're in the crowd listening to Jesus talking. And through the whole of your life, you've looked on at the rich people and you didn't have much money. And you've looked on at the popular people and you weren't very popular. And you've looked on at the people that were healthy and you're not healthy. You may even have been some kind of leper or an outcast or someone that the world despises and thinks there's nothing about this person. You've got nothing good going for you. You've looked at the wisest people in the world because being wise sometimes is perceived to be a reason to be happy. And you're not maybe very smart and you can't put it together and maybe your arithmetic's not very good and you can't rhyme your, your sentences and you don't understand grammar and all those sort of things. And Jesus is saying to you, I see you. I see you. I see you even though the world doesn't see you. I see you even though culture doesn't see you. I see you even though culture says that you don't matter because you're sick and you're poor and you're unpopular and you don't have a lot. I see you. And actually, it's more than I see you. I'm actually saying it's a good thing. And let that sink in for a minute and realize how countercultural what Jesus is saying is. Those who are down in the kingdom are actually And the converse might be true, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but let's talk about what it means to, 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 to be down, to be humble, to, to be poor in spirit. Firstly, I don't think being poor in spirit means that you're falsely humble. You know what I mean about false humility is when, it's when you act like you're humble so that people think you're humble. <laughs> but actually what you're trying to do is just make them think that you're humble and think that there's something good about you acting humble. Um, and it's really all about you, and it's nothing to do with actually being humble, right? We all do it, right? Or maybe it's just me. <laughs> but we act like we don't know anything. We act like we, you know, we just, we're, just, we're just humble, and I'm so, oh, I can't. Yeah, we don't speak out in meetings because of, 
nothing I could say that could possibly. And they say, why don't you say, you don't say something, you say then there's like. It's not that. It's absolutely not that. Because false humility is actually pride, because what you're actually doing in false humility is acting like you're somebody, but pretending that you're nobody in your own head. And to people, I'm nobody, and I'm pretending that I'm nobody. It's weird, isn't it? It's a mix. We're not called to do that. There's a passage in Romans 12, verse 3 that says this, For I say, Paul says, through the grace given me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, don't think of yourself more highly than you, than you ought to. Paul's saying that in the end of the day, work out where you really are and just think of yourself exactly like that, not more than it. It says there that God has dealt everyone a measure of faith. So if God's given you faith to be a president, then act like a president. If God's given you faith to be a leader, then act like a leader. If God's given you faith to be a leader, don't say, I can't lead. If God's given you faith to speak, then speak. If God's given you faith to do extraordinary things that other people look at and think that thing's extraordinary, I couldn't do it, then do it. And there's nothing humble about not doing it if God's giving you the measure of faith because what you're actually doing is you're denying the faith that God has given you. And what would be the point of that? Because what you're doing is you're saying, God, you've given me faith, you've given me the ability to do something and I'm gonna do nothing with it because I'm humble. How many of you struggle with that? How many of you struggle with the concept of leadership because you're thinking to lead and to stand up and to talk and to do stuff? I can't do it. Somebody else should be here. But if God's given you a measure of faith, it's for a purpose. If God's given you the ability to speak, then speak. If God's given you the ability to give, if you're a billionaire and God gives you a sense that you should give your billions to someone, then do it. Rather than, oh, I couldn't do that because they might think something of me. And the scripture actually tells you how to do that. You give so that your left hand doesn't know that your right hand does it, did it. So I don't think that being poor in spirit is about being falsely humble. The next thing I'm going to say is I'm not sure that being poor in spirit means exactly being just poor. Now, this is difficult because the Gospel of Luke also has something that's not called the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Sermon on the Plain because it says that Jesus comes down to this level, level place. It's in Luke 6, 17. But Luke just goes for it. He doesn't say blessed are the poor in spirit. He says flat out blessed are the poor. And then later he says, woe to you who are rich. But he adds this phrase, for you have received your consolation. So I wonder whether being rich is something to do with being consoled. What does it mean to be consoled? It means to be comforted. It means that you derive some benefit from being rich. And in the rest of the New Testament, there's a story about a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says that I've done all these good things, I've kept the law and all those things, and what else have I got to do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And what does Jesus say to him? It's a little problematic, isn't it, what he says? Yeah, to the rich man, he says, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor, come follow me. How easy is that? It's not. It's impossible. If I have one cent, is it easier to give that one cent away than if I have $10 billion in the bank? And through my riches, I've been consoled. Through my riches, I've bought all the things that make me happy, such as security, because I can afford the castle on the hill with high-tech security and guards and armies. And when I'm sick, I can fly in the best doctors 
to console me and to make me well. And I've got the best medical insurance. And in fact, you know what? I own a hospital and it's just for me. When I get sick, I throw all the other patients out and they treat me first. And I get there immediately in my helicopter. There's another passage in the New Testament that's troubling and says that something problematic about riches is the rich man and Lazarus, which is in Luke 16. You think about what it says there. In Luke 16, Jesus is telling a story to the Pharisees who it says were lovers of money, who were esteemed by men, and he says that what is esteemed by men is actually an abomination to God. And so he's saying, you guys are rich in society's eyes, and men look at you and say there's something great about you, but in God's eyes, that's an abomination. And he tells them a story about this rich man who has at his gate a man called Lazarus. And Lazarus, it says, is poor, and he says he has sores, and the dogs come and lick the sores. Now, this may well be a description of Israel and the Gentiles waiting at the door for salvation, but it may actually just be a story of rich, richness and poverty. I'm not sure which one it is. But let's imagine this, because what actually happens is that at the end of things, Lazarus is comforted, and the rich man says, I'm now suffering. And Jesus says to him, in your lifetime, you were consoled. In your lifetime, you were comforted. But he had the worst that the world has to throw at him, and now he's doing okay. And so we have to watch what riches do for us but I'm pretty sure that Luke isn't just saying, blessed are the poor, full stop, apart from the fact that they're deriving some sort of consolation from their riches. From the, from, sorry, the, woe to the, the rich, apart from the fact that somehow there's some consolation being derived from the riches. Because you can be the poorest person on the planet or the richest person on the planet, and you can still get consolation from cash, right? Scratch-offs. The lottery. Why? Because there's a sense in which this is going to fix my life. The poor saying the same thing as the rich man, money is the answer. Is it? How hard is it if Jesus turned up here and said, every one of you, give me your PIN number, give me your bank account number, empty it, give me the deeds to your house, your car or cars and your boats and your rental properties, and come follow me. We would say, hmm. And so he actually does say it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't he say this? And whether that's actually talking about a physical camel going through eye of a needle, or whether there's some historical place, I've heard it said that there was a place where, where camels had to stoop down so that the, to get through some particular gate, whichever one of those is, it's not easy. But I'm saying to you that I think the most important thing Jesus is saying that being poor in spirit means that you're not getting any consolation from anything. You're so poor that even if you have money, it's not making any difference. You're so poor in yourself that no amount of cash can fix it. But this is the important question then, is how is it possible to be poor in spirit? If blessedness comes because we are poor in spirit, how can we become poor in spirit. How can we do this? Humble yourself. Make yourself humble. They used to sit in sackcloth and ashes in the Bible, didn't they? Yeah. 
used to do things that actually humbled themselves. When's the last time we, we did this in church and humbled ourselves on our knees until our knees hurt? When's the last time someone went up there in the middle of the service and humbled themselves while someone was preaching or singing and just got up there and just bowed down and humbled themselves and said, I don't care who's watching me, but I need God right now. And God, this thing you've told me to do means I've got to walk down here and come and kneel here on this nasty concrete floor and this thing that I might get splinters from, but I'm going to do it anyway. Humble yourself. When's the last time we did anything that meant we humbled ourselves? Salvation for me when I was a kid meant I had to get up of my seat and walk all the way to the front. I don't know whether that makes it more or less godly, but it took me years to do it. These days, it's like when every head's, eyes, head's bowed, every hand's closed, just raise a hand, and if anybody sees it, just pretend that you were just scratching your ear. Humble ourselves is one way to be poor in spirit. First Peter 5 Verses five to six says this, all of you be submissive to one another. That's another way we can humble ourselves. If Steve and I are having an argument about this important point of scripture and I'm like, Steve is so wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, Steve's like, Douglas is so wrong. How do we resolve that? Do we shout louder? Do we fight? We take our shirts off. Come on, Steve, let's do this. Last man, last man standing. <laughs> Yeah, but that's how we do it in politics. When's the last time you saw a politician humble themselves? Anybody ever seen that? Blake and I were both running. Imagine me saying, Blake, you know what, brother? If you win, I'm for you. If I win, thank you. <laughs> May the best man win. Let's run on policies. Let me not belittle you in public. Let me not talk about Blaze in public, <laughs> right? Let me not talk about Theo, your dog, in public. You get a picture of Blake's dog. Look at this thing. <laughs> Any man that has a dog like this, he can't run for office, right? <laughs> Sorry, Blake. <laughs> but that's what our political ads are like, aren't they? But they're, they're not as nice as that. We don't humble ourselves in the political sphere. We don't humble ourselves in the boardroom. We don't humble ourselves in our households. How often do we say wife, husband, son, daughter, you know what? You're right, I'm wrong. Humble yourselves, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. We'll look at this next passage. For what does God do? God resists the, oh, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and so I, my sense of the mighty hand of God is when it says that God resists the proud is that somehow we begin to perceive that the mighty hand of God is actually resisting us in something. That God is actually standing in our way. That God is blocking our progress. That God is saying, no, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may do what in due time? Exalt you, casting all your care on him for he cares for you. So Steve, you know what? It's fine, you're right doesn't matter. And if I'm wrong, if I'm right, God will prove that. Isn't this what the cross was about? The whole world says that the cross is foolishness, that Jesus dying on the cross, submitting himself to the rulers and authorities to crucify him and to be dead and buried and raise, to rise again is nonsense. But Jesus at the end of the day says, well, then kill me. I submit. 
I submit to the hands of evil men who are going to kill me because they think I've done something, and I know I've done nothing wrong. At the end of the day, he's silent in front of, 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 um, of Pilate because if he'd said anything, he would have got off. So Jesus is playing into this whole thing. You think you're in charge. <laughs> but don't you realize that I could call angels, legions of angels right now to just prove who's right. I know I'm right, but I'm not going to prove I'm right. That's what it means to humble yourselves. And remember this Peter who writes the epistle of Peter is actually Simon Peter. Think how Peter was humbled. You see, that's the other thing. If we don't humble ourselves, God's going to do it. God will humble us if we don't humble ourselves. Simon Peter says to Jesus, I'll never deny you. I'll give my life for you. And Jesus says, no, hold on a second. That's not quite how it's going to work out. Because Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, and I've prayed for you that, that your faith won't fail, and after you come back, that you'll strengthen your brothers. In other words, Jesus has seen what's really going to get going on, and Peter's full of himself and self-assured and self-confident and full of pride, and he says, I'll never do it, but what happens next? Jesus lays it down and says, I'm going to make it real plain so you don't think it was coincidental. It just happens. It's going to happen three times. And then the cock crow and all that stuff, and when Peter denies him, is it in front of a legion of Roman centurions? It's a little girl. You were one of his followers. Sorry, Steve, you pointed someone else. Todd. <laughs> you were one of his followers. No, I wasn't. Little four-year-old. Little four-year-old, and then the cockerel. And Peter, so bitterly broken, weeps, runs out. And when Jesus finds him again by the shore of the, 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 the sea, and he says to him, Peter, do you love me? Look how broken Peter is inside. He can't even answer it. He's poor in spirit. He's got nothing left. There's no confidence in himself. Peter, do you love me? Peter actually says, if you read the Greek word, it shifts to, I kind of like you, Lord. Jesus says again, Peter, do you love me? Jesus, Peter responds, Lord, you know I like you. And then Jesus shifts the word down. How humbling is that? Jesus says, okay, do you really even like me? Look at this man who leads the church. He's humbled, poor in spirit. He's broken to the point that God is able to use him. And this is the same story of, in, throughout the whole of Scripture. Think of the story of Joseph. What happens to Joseph? Joseph is what first? Full of himself. Yeah, I have this dream, and this dream is big, and it means that my brothers are going to bow down and worship me, and Dad, you're going to bow down and worship me. How well would that wouldn't have gone down well in my house? <laughs> One of my brothers putting me in the pit. <laughs> but the next thing, he finds himself in the pit. His brothers beat up on him. They're like, okay, we'll take that coat from you. And then he's tra tra um, trafficked to, to Egypt. And then he's, he's in the house of Potiphar. And it begins to go well for him in Potiphar's house. And everything's working for him and favor is with him. And the next thing, what's happening is Potiphar's wife is falsely accusing him of sexual harassment or more. And he didn't do it. And he's thrown in jail and he's forgotten in jail. What's going on in this process? Who's humbling him? Circumstances are humbling him. Who's orchestrating the circumstances? You see the point? If you find yourself faced up with something, you're pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing, and it's not working. Maybe it's God you're actually resisting. Maybe God's saying, somehow, just let your pride go. Let your pride go. 
Don't force it. Don't fight it. Don't try and make it happen by your own hands. I'll do it in time. David, the same thing happens. King David, he's taken from the shepherd, shepherd field. Worry, what is a shepherd field? What do you call things that sheep are in? Pasture. That's good. All right. He's <laughs> taken from the pasture where he's just a, a, a guitar player and, and all, maybe a harp and all that other thing, a liar and stuff. And he's taken right into, into, into a point when, when his brothers are standing around and they haven't even called him in when, when Samuel the prophet comes to anoint the next king and he's taken into the midst of his brothers and he's probably thinking, eh, 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 yeah, I knew I was better than you all and you're standing there thinking it's gonna be me and it is him and Samuel anoints him with oil. And the next thing, what's he doing next? He's slaying giants. He's slaying giants. He's killing Goliath. He's walking to the front of the army and he's saying, you lot are useless. I can do it. And he whips, whips the giant with a stone. My son has got a sling. <laughs> it's, he, he practices on Catherine. I'm sorry, Catherine. He doesn't, he's, I don't think he's ever released a stone, but he, he, he does his David the shepherd thing. Sorry, Nathan, are you here? It should have been. You could have... <laughs> Could have, could have said something in response. But at the end of the day, what does he next find himself is in the palace of the king. And he's soothing the king. When the king has this troubling spirit, David just plays this beautiful harp and the spirit leaves him. But the next thing, what's the king doing? He's throwing spears at him. And he's chasing him and he wants to kill him and he's running and he's hiding in the wilderness and all these weird people start hanging with him. God's humbling him. Moses is humbled over 40 years in the wilderness. Peter, we've spoken about Paul. What's Paul's experience? Is Paul humbled by God? Do you think that when you're riding your horse on the road to Damascus to go and get letters to persecute Christians, so you're driving your Bentley and you're back in your car and you're driving the Bentley down, down Roswell Road <laughs> and suddenly there's this blinding light and you're thrown out of the car on the road, so I'm just modernizing Paul's conversion, and you find yourself blinded. God's humbling him. And so the important thing is this, is recognizing that God will humble us if we don't humble ourselves. Therefore, Peter encourages us, humble ourselves. Otherwise, God can humble us, particularly if his purposes are for us. And if God somehow has us in his plan, he'll bring us to a point of poverty of spirit. So don't find yourself pushing against the hand of God. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says, reflecting on God leading the Israelites through the wilderness, remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you. Think about that. God led them into the wilderness in order to humble them and to test them, to find out what was in their hearts, whether they would keep his commandments or not. So we hum he humbled you. God allowed them to hunger. So they're hungry because God allowed it. He feeds them with manna, which they didn't know. He humbles them into this place of recognizing that every morning there's this thing gonna come down from heaven. And it's only there because God has given it to them. That he might let you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So in other words, God humbled the nation of Israel to teach them something, that they need him. They needed his water from a rock, they needed the manna from heaven. They needed the cloud to guide them. Your garments didn't wear out, verse four. Your foot didn't swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, 
so the Lord your God chastens you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Ultimately, if we find ourselves in a place where we're poor in spirit, that we're not high in spirit, that we're not proud, that we're not full of ourselves, we're a little broken or a lot broken when we're down, whether we're acknowledging that self doesn't work or lack or poverty or brokenness or dissatisfaction, we're hurting, we're helpless, we're in pain, we're weak. We're saying, I don't know a lot. We're saying, I'm not very able. Might it be that in that place, that's where we find God? Might it be that if we never find ourselves in a place of poverty of spirit, that we never find God? If I'm full of myself, if I think I can, I'm sufficient, I've got the answers, I know how, I can do it, I can succeed, I can keep myself safe, I can keep myself secure, I have answers. Some people say that people find God in jail, right? You guys that do prison ministry, you know what that's like. They find God there sometimes, don't they? For the first time. Jailhouse religion. People say that jailhouse religion isn't real. But some people say that it's the only kind there actually is. Until we find ourselves maybe shut in, locked in, walled in, hemmed in, lacking something, needing something, that that's the point that our poverty in spirit yields to something different. And we say this, that I need a savior. And so if we return to that triangle, we realize that at the end of the day, the base of this all is a way of humility and the distinctiveness of disciples. What makes us disciples of Jesus is that the thing we have on the bottom right side is we've acknowledged that we need a savior. That has to be the basis to everything else that happens next. And it doesn't have to be a triangle. It could have been straight up on the sides, but maybe it is aspiring to something that's getting ever more harder and higher and higher. It's interesting because those of you who like the Tower of Babel and, and understanding what God was doing in history there realized that men and women aspired to the heavens to build something to God. And God wasn't happy with it. God wasn't happy with humanity coming together and trying to build something to show how great they were. But if this is our tower to heaven, it's instead of being built by bricks and mortar and concrete and other things, it's being built by walking in the way of Jesus. And the very basis, the very first thing is, it's a way of humility, which says, first and foremost, I need a savior. So Jesus says to you this morning, it's okay to be poor in spirit. It's okay to lack, it's okay to need, and it's okay to exchange your low self-confidence for him. And each week we're gonna build further up that with another way that is walking in the way of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, present tense that is, theirs is right now the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is revealing a kingdom of heaven and saying that the kingdom of heaven is near. It's right here. And you can enter into that kingdom of heaven even on this day if you've never entered into it before.
the present reality of the rule and reign of the kingdom of God is right here. And that's an eternal kingdom, one that we can enter into as Jesus beckons us and says, come, come. And so I I never assume that it's terrible in churches sometimes, everybody's a Christian. Terrible thing. Jesus said, I came for the sick. He told stories of leaving 99 sheep to go look for the one. So I'm going to pause for a moment. I'm going to ignore everyone here who is a Christian. I'm going to say to you on this day that if you don't know Jesus, if you've never, ever at some point in your life asked Jesus to be part of your life, asked Him to come into your heart, asked Him to transform you, You've confessed to Him that you need Him, I'm not going to ask people to come down to the front, but you can if you want to. But I would ask you just to close your eyes because we're in 2021. And we're going to take small steps. I'm going to say some words. And if you've never prayed a prayer of need for the Lord Jesus Christ, just repeat these words after me. And I'm going to say them one phrase at a time. And if you're like me, I was a Christian, I used to say them as well. Because my needs continue. Lord Jesus, I need you. Lord Jesus, I need you to save me. I believe you are God. I believe you came to earth as the Son of God to save me, to die for me, for my sins. I need your grace to live. I need your life for my sinfulness that I might live for you. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today, um, I'm going to ask you, there's two people at the back, Ryan and Silvana Tuttle, who are our prayer team. I want you to when we begin to take communion, just make your way to the back and tell them that that's what you did and ask them to help you with the next steps and to pray with you, to solidify you in the step that you've just taken. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. My brothers, my sisters, it's okay to be poor in spirit. It's okay to be broken. It's okay to be down. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to need. Because Jesus says, Ours is the kingdom of heaven.